Y'all, thanks for being here. Uh, lesson one, class one, lecture one of what I hope to be 30 weeks uh, through Romans. Don't worry. You don't have to commit to all 30 weeks. I'm just glad you're here. If you hate it, you never have to come back. You don't have to come to all of them. But we do want to, we want to walk through the book. So it's going to be more or less 15, uh, 14 or 15 uh, lectures this fall and then 15 in the spring. And we should finish sometime around early May, I think, but certainly before the summertime hits. Um, there's so much that I want to say. I'll say this and then I'll pray and we can, we can jump in. Um, really glad you're here for all the obvious reasons. Um, this is, this is exciting, but also you're missing an Astros game. You're, you could be a lot of other places. Paul was like, yes, I am. Um, you could be doing a lot of other things at seven 30 on a Monday night. Some of you have kids, some of you are tag teaming with your spouse. Um, and so Willie, you're raising, you're raising both your boys solo, and you're here. So um, that is, I mean, y'all, you all made a big effort to be here. We have a new, a new doctor among us here, you know. I mean, guys, we got two guys from Montrose. We got a guy from St. Louis that's from Uzbekistan. So, I mean, guys, this is, seriously, thank you for being here. Um, I know you could be doing anything else. So let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this, uh, this time. Thank you for the privilege of being able to open up your word together, to read your word, to have your word, to know what you're like, what your plan for our lives is, what you've done, how you've manifest yourself, how you've shown us your very heart and made a great and wide open way of salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you flood our hearts by your Holy Spirit, even now with um, just wonder and gratitude and joy. And would you walk with us today? Would you walk with us um, over these next 30 weeks as we, as we walk through this amazing letter of Paul for your glory, for the expansion of your kingdom so that we might be, be built up in Christ and that so many might come to know him. We, we earnestly ask this of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, real quickly, so, so what we're going to do, I think I said this, yeah, I'll say this in a bit. Let me just open up with me to Matthew 26. Um, you don't have to, um, from now on, bring your Bible if you can. No shame if you, if you don't. But um, I'd actually, I'm old school. I'd actually prefer you to have a Bible as opposed to like a phone. Electronic devices are fine. Um, if you have your phone, that's great. No, zero shame. But just because it's distracting. I know if you're technologically savvy, you can like turn off all other, you know, notifications. But for me, it's like I'm reading the Bible and then something pops up and I get distracted. Squirrel, squirrel. So try to bring your Bible if you can. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to, to get into Romans together. Turn with me real, real quickly to Matthew 26. I guess that means I should turn there too. Um, let me just say, I may bite into our Q&A time a bit. We're definitely going to have one to, at the end. But because there's intro material, because I want to intro the book and I want to get through the first 15 verses tonight, um, I won't be doing intro material in the future. You know, so it'll be, it will be an hour bang on. Um, but I might need to bite, bite off a little bit of the Q and a time. We'll see. Um, but knowing me, I will. So, but we'll still have that at the end and I will, we'll make sure that we're done by nine. Okay. Um, so Matthew 26, um, I want to highlight two verses for a moment before we step into Romans. Um, we're on the, we're in the garden of Gethsemane. We're on the eve of crucifixion. Um, and it's, it's the last, it's Jesus's last night before he dies, before he dies on a cross for us, for, for sinners. And he's being betrayed, and Peter has just tried to step in and help in, in his usual unhelpful way, um, this time by cutting off uh, the, high pri- the, the servant of the high priest. His name is 
his name is Malchus. So he was, he was a real person. He, he, uh, his name was Malchus. He probably ended up becoming a, a follower of Christ because when someone cuts your ear off and then Jesus puts it back on and then he goes and he dies on the cross and he rises again, you pretty much believe that he's awesome and he's, that he's who he says he is and he's, he's the great healer and savior. So, so his name's Malchus. He cuts, so Peter steps in. He's trying to do his best and he just cuts the guy's ear off. Like, it's like that's, that's our effort. When it comes to helping Jesus with salvation, that's, that's about as much as we can do. So um, I'm not interested in that so much as Jesus' response. And what does Jesus say? He says, he says, put your sword away, Peter, basically. Don't you know that I can pull out way more, this is my translation, way more firepower, way more firepower than a sword? If I didn't want this to happen, everybody thinks this is, the wheels are coming off. Even though, even though he's told them, this is, my, this is the plan. We just don't think that way. Like, oh, this is how you're going to save the world through weakness, through, through surrender. And so he's like, man, um, this is going exactly according to plan. And his response is, hey, so put the sword away. Verse, 40, verse 54 of Matthew 26. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And then skipping verse 55, verse 56 says, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples, all the disciples left him and fled in uh, fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah 9. Um, strike, the sheep and the, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. So, so my, what interests me, I was thinking about this just in the shower of all places a couple days ago. It just kind of popped into my head. Uh, I think I, I had my quiet time this morning, that morning in, in this text. But um, two times he says, um, you would think that Jesus, what does he not say? If I, if I'm, if I haven't read this, I would think that Jesus would, would say, this ha- Peter, you're getting in the way of your salvation. Like this has to happen for people to be saved. But that's not what he says. He says, this has to happen so the scriptures must be fulfilled. Because the scriptures must be fulfilled. And that's exactly what it is in the Greek. It's the word day in the Greek. It means it has to happen. And, 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 and the question why, why does it have to happen this way is, as we said, because the scriptures say it's going to happen this way. Um, and my point is that there's nothing more powerful or important than God's word. Um, there's nothing more powerful and important than God's word. You, so my mom, when she raised us, she would say a bunch of things, and some of them stuck and some of them didn't. But one of the things she would say all the time is, there are, um, the two most important things in the world are people and God's word, invest accordingly. And she would actually say the two things that last forever are people and God's word, invest accordingly. Um, and so you are, you know, I love the Astros as much as the next guy, but you're choosing to miss that game. You're choosing to miss other things, to be here investing in, digging into God's word with other people. Some of us follow Christ, some of us might not. And that's, we're, we're all welcome here. And I hope that increasingly we'll bring folks that, that don't know him. Um, because the word of God is powerful and, it, and there's, there's, there's nothing more powerful than God's word. It has to be fulfilled. Um, do you want to have a sense of why things are happening the way they are? Uh, of where we're headed and of what makes God tick, of what makes us tick, of how you can be saved? Do you want to find your reason for existing? what to do with your life, you've come to the right place. My prayer for us is that God would change our lives and indeed our homes, our geography, our city, and our world during this time together. He can do it by his word. There's no greater power. So, okay, a few housekeeping things. Um, and then we'll, we'll kind of back up and, and look at, over the book and then we'll jump into the first, the first bit of it. Um, so timeline, 30 weeks, like I said, that might seem like a long time, but it's actually, in, in sort of my way of thinking, it's, like a, it's, it's speeding through the book. Absolutely speeding through the book. Um, 
Martin Lloyd Jones. He was he was a Welshman who was the most famous preacher in England um, in the in the 20th century, probably um, preached mid mid to late 20th century in London. And he, uh, you can actually listen to, he lectured through Romans on Fridays, and he, it took him, I think, 377 uh, Fridays, and um, seven years or something like that, and he actually, in his first, it takes him two, two sermons just to get through the first word in Romans, Paul. <laughs> so, so actually, compared to that, you'll find that we're absolutely speeding through the book. Um, it's basically going to be about, there are 16 chapters in Romans, so it's going to be about uh, we'll divide the chapter up into, into you know, we'll, we'll spend about two, two weeks per chapter, more or less. Um, three weeks in chapter one, and there may be one or two other exceptions. Um, and then it, we'll do a couple in a week. So another thing, if you can save your questions to the end, please, please write them down. We have a Q&A at the end for a reason. I, wanna, I want this to be a dialogue. I also, I don't, I do, if you have a question that's burning that like really you want it, you feel like you need to ask, ask it by all means. I, I do want this to be a dialogue. Um, I may repeat your question um, just for the sake of the recording. So actually during the Q&A time at the end, I'll try, to, I'll try to repeat the question. And if I don't, if actually if you can just say, hey, can you repeat? So you know when you're listening to this sort of format and, and there's a question asked and you can't hear the question, but you have to piece it together based on what the answer is. So I want to try to avoid that. Um, this isn't just a lecture time. Thirdly, this is worship. Um, I was thinking that, and then I heard Dr. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, David Martin Lloyd-Jones say that, and I was, I was gratified to hear him say that. He's like, when the church gets together, we get together to worship God when we open up his word. It's the time of worship. This isn't, this isn't primarily a lecture. We are worshiping God through his word. And that's the reason that we will have typically from now on, just for the sake of time, because I'm introing and I knew we'd kind of, we'd have, we'd be a little bit late for obvious reasons. It's the first time um, today. I, I actually decided we, um, and because I'm cheap and I was going to have to print out the songs myself and, and the printer wasn't working at, <laughs> at the office side. Okay. I was praying about it. Should we do it, Lord? So from now on, we'll probably start with a hymn or a song, and we'll just sing it together a cappella. And then I do, I, I do want to at least pray over you at the end after the Q&A session and even have a, maybe a time of prayer. Um, but I, I do want this to be a time of, of worship, and it is. So, um, and like I said, for that reason, I have a sign-up sheet, so please make sure it makes its way all around. And I really just want to pray for you um, and pray for this time weekly. So, Okay, let's, let's jump into the book itself, um, Paul's letter to the Roman church. I want to keep an eye on the time. Um, why restart our Surgeon Academy equipping class with 30 week, a 30-week class on Romans? Why start in this way? Well, it's the best of Paul. So, okay, we have a thing called Surgeon Academy. We want to be teaching you from God's word. Um, even the theme classes will be rooted in God's word, in his perfect word. Um, we... We've had a few in our past, then we had this thing called COVID, and it kind of stopped that a bit from happening, and now we're sort of restarting, and, I, and this is just a great time to restart Surgeon Academy, um, and we're hoping that this won't be a one-off, it'll be, we're expecting that this will be, we'll go through Romans, and then after that we'll start to add other classes, and we have a whole, a whole slate of things that we'd love to teach through, to nourish, to nourish, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Um, and, and so... Um, thank y'all for this. It's great. And so, um, why start with Romans? Well, it's the best of Paul's letters to the churches along the Mediterranean rim, um, written about 2000 years ago. I'm quoting here. Romans is Paul's fullest, grandest, most comprehensive statement of the gospel. That's from the Reformation study Bible. Um, the intro in that study Bible is worth quoting a little more fully. 
Let me read it. It says, All the reformers saw Romans as the God-given key to understanding all Scripture. So what a great way. This isn't just a letter that we've chosen. This is the key. This is Paul's magnum opus. This is his best way of explaining why did Jesus come and do what he did. How does it make sense of the whole counsel of God, of all of history, from the start all the way to the finish? Um, Since here, they say, Paul brings together all the greatest themes, sin, law, judgment, human destiny, faith, works, grace, justification, sanctification, election, the plan of salvation, the work of Christ, the work of the Spirit, the Christian hope, the nature and life of the church, the place of Jew and non-Jew and the purposes of God, the philosophy of church and world history, the meaning and message of the Old Testament, the duties of Christian citizenship, the nature and purpose of Christian liberty, and the principles of personal godliness and morality. That's pretty much in order of the book. The study of Romans is vitally necessary, they say, for the spiritual health and insight of the Christian. More briefly, Calvin is typically, typically brief. Um, he wrote a lot, but when he says something, it's, it's, it's usually just pretty, pretty dense. When anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole scripture. Um, if you'll notice in your Bible, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you have Acts, which is the only book of its kind. It's sui generis, uh, to use a Latin phrase. It's, um, it is the only window we have in the New Testament into sort of the early church at work. God at work through his church. The rest of the epistles are essentially, okay, what is in the church? What is, what is the life? What does Jesus's life, death, and resurrection mean for us as we operate as his body in the world? But Acts is us looking having a window into the early church. Um, so after Acts, the epistles start. And um, Romans is the first. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans, and then a bunch of other epistles. Um, so the question is, why is Romans first? Um, and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones entertains this question, and, and he says, do you think it's because it's the longest? And I think that's, a possibility, and so does he, could be. Um, but he goes on to say, um, yes, but it's likely first, not just because it's the longest, um, but it's because it's first in importance. And the, in the early church, they ordered it that way because they wanted to say, after the Gospels and the book of Acts, the first of the epistles, that tell us about what God's done in history, written to a church, a church in Rome, um, to talk to us about how should we then live in light of what God has done for us in Christ, is Romans. Because it is, it is Paul's magnum opus. Um, it's changed the lives of giants of the church throughout the ages, and has thus massively shaped the history of the church. So just a few of a zillion um, examples. John Chrysostom, an early church father, he had it read to him one to two times a week. Just the whole, uh, which I'll lay down a challenge at the end here, but um, for, for all of us, but just um, every week he had it read to him once or twice. Um, there, by the way, let me, there's power in actually just reading the word of God aloud, even by, by yourself. There's power. You're, you're automatically, you're benefiting from two more senses right off the bat. You're speaking it and you're hearing it. And those are two things that don't happen when you're just reading silently. Um, so I highly encourage that. I don't do it enough. Um, Augustine. Um, the God, God used a word in this epistle to convert him. He is the great, I think I can just say, he is the greatest church father bar none. Everyone takes from Augustine. Everyone claims Augustine. Um, Romans 13, 13, I believe, I believe was, I didn't look this up, was the verse, uh, let us walk properly as in the daytime, 
not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. He was sitting down by, he was a brilliant rhetorician in the Latin world and uh, trained classically. Uh, he, he had a massive sex problem. Uh, he loved, uh, he loved being promiscuous and he was promiscuous and he, um, he was grabbed, he was grabbed hold of by that sin and he began to be confronted with the truth of the living God through, through Christ. And he sat down by a fountain and he was just wrestling with the Lord, sort of praying in a way that he knew how. And he heard a child, um, basically singing a children's ditty saying, take up and read, take up and read in Latin, tole lege, tole lege. And he, um, so he, he opened up his Bible, just Russian roulette, you know, just zinc. <laughs> and that's this, and these verses are the first verses that he read. And it grabbed him. And the Lord used this word. I mean, he does it through Jonah, right? Jonah goes and preaches the word of the Lord, the worst sermon ever to the Ninevites, and through the power of God's word, an entire wicked city repents and is saved. Um, so the power of God's word to change this man. Luther, um, his, his, we won't go, go into sort of how tormented this man was, um, by his own sense of his own sin, uh, had, he had, he felt like he needed to, um, confess every single sin that he committed. And he would, he would drive his confessors insane. He would be up all night in his cell, just confessing, 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 because he knew he was just tormented by the sense of how many sins he had. And he felt like if he missed one, then it was, um, and so as he began to lecture on the Psalms and on Galatians and on Romans in particular, um, the Lord used that to open up the gospel to him. And it really changed the West and it changed the world. I mean, he was the spark that lit the powder keg that really, that really helped blow the Reformation into, into full effect. Um, the, the, uh, the passage that I hope to get to next week in particular really grabbed him and opened up to him the problem he was wrestling with and helped him see how God has solved it in Christ. And that's Romans 1, 16 and 17. Um, this week, I just want to say, is going to be it's intro material. It's like Paul saying, hello, here's who I am. Here's, I'm writing to you some pleasantries. It's all important. We're going to dig into it. But we really start to get into meat and potatoes. Uh, the, whole, the whole theme of the book is in those two verses next week. We'll spend the whole uh, lecture on those two verses, Romans 1, 16 and 17. And then after that, Paul begins his argument, uh, leading us, trapping us, uh, in, in his web, his brilliant web, and leading us to the only solution for our predicament. Um, and so he, he starts that in Romans 1.18, and it's, and it's, it's going to be quite a journey. Um, so please, please come back for that. Um, John Wesley, um, he said he was, uh, th- this, this, this book wrecked and converted him. If you read the chapter on Wesley's effect in England after God grabbed hold of him and saved him. Um, in Vishal Mangalwadi's The Book That Made Your World, it's, it's worth the price of the book. It's stunning. Absolutely stunning. Um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, um, the, uh, the romantic poet and, uh, and, and very educated um, author and thinker, he called Romans the greatest work of literature, period. And he was conversant in multiple languages and, and multiple corpuses of, of, of literature, and um, German, English, and he said this is the single greatest work of literature, period. Um, so that's just a few examples of, of the effect that Romans has had. Um, sometimes I teach a group of men who, uh, they've been in the same Bible study now for over 20 years, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start teaching them just for seven weeks, like in a couple weeks, and um, I told them, hey, why don't we just do... I'll just do the first three chapters of Romans because we'll be, you and I will be doing this together. 
And he said, that's amazing. We've never, we've never studied Romans. It's like, are you kidding me? You've been studying the Bible for 20 years. You've never studied Romans. I actually, I was at a, right now is open house. My wife's a teacher, a sixth grade teacher in, in this, the school that our kids go to, open house. And so I went up there early to kind of meet some of the teachers. I'm like, Seth's doing okay, you know? Um, Seth's my son. And, and um, one of the teachers, I said, oh yeah, I got to skip to do, uh, I'm, I'm starting a, we're starting a Bible study in Romans. And she goes, Romans, why would you study that book? That was her first response. She's a Christian. When I used to study Romans. She's like, ah, it's so scary. And um, so I want to say C.S. Lewis um, has this great, he has this great essay on why we ought to study the great authors um, and the great books and why they're great, they're great for a reason. And a lot of times we're scared of the great books and we're scared of the great authors. And so we read secondary literature about them, but that's often a lot more abstruse and difficult and murky than the great authors. The great authors, they're great for a reason. And many times it's because they're not, they're not abstruse and opaque. They're simple. They're beautiful. I'm not saying Romans is simple. It's a profound, complex argument, but there's a simplicity and a beauty and understandability and they're nourishing. And Romans is certainly that way. These are qualities and marks of greatness. Romans will nourish us. It's going to be an awesome journey. My chief prayer is that as we walk through this book together, we will meet Jesus and find him more beautiful than when we began. Um, and, this, and that this will change us and that he'll make us more like him. And that'll have an effect on our world. Um, okay, here's my challenge. I want to encourage you to read Romans this year. Okay, so that's the, that's the cha- that's If you read Romans this year and you come to some of these classes, that's a win. It's already a win that you're here. Um, so I want to challenge you to read Romans at least once in these 30 weeks. Um, Another challenge I want to offer is to consider reading Romans weekly or monthly at your pleasure. Um, But read it. It's really not that long of a letter. Um, My wife probably reads more in other books than Romans every night. She probably reads, you know, 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 pages. Romans is not 50 pages long. Um, So consider reading it. It's really these kind of letters were read all at once to a church. So there's something about just reading, reading it straight through, reading it in two or three sittings. Um, and then as we, and we can, we'll study it bit by bit too, okay? Um, and invite others. Please invite, uh, pray through it. Um, pray for this time. Pray for one another. Invite other people, especially those who don't know him. Okay, so 56 AD um, is, is about when we think it, Romans is written. Um, the Roman church is already well established. The Jews have been kicked out of Rome in 49 AD by Claudius for rioting at, quote, at the instigation of Crestus, which is, of course, Jesus. So they were mad that the Christians were already starting to make such an impact on Rome. And that was in 49 AD, about seven years before Paul wrote this. So this is less than 20 years after Christ's resurrection from the dead, at which point Rome was a city completely devoted to uh, Grecian Roman paganism. But not anymore. You can see that in Romans 1.8. Paul says, hey, your witness has already, has already gone out through the entire known world, through the entire Roman world, right? So in, in tw- less than 20 years since Christ's resurrection, think about the impact that these early Christians were having and how they were proclaiming the, the resurrection of the Son of God. Um, the tide is starting to turn. In 300 years, Christianity will be the official religion of the Roman state. Um, hang on to this. Never give up hope or underestimate the power of the gospel to change a heart, a people, a culture, an empire, a country, and our world. He will surely, he will surely do it.
He has done it throughout history, and he will do it again. And he will do it completely. And he'll use us. He'll use us. That's how he works. It's amazing. Um, it starts with a renovated heart, with a, grad, with a changed heart, right? Um, so, yeah, just think what this says of the witnesses of the early church and of Paul's ministry. Um, the point of this book, I'm sort of paraphrasing Luther, is to break down, to devastate, to decimate our confidence in our own righteousness. And to cause us to flee to Christ's righteousness for us received with the open hand of faith. Um, this, this is the opening salvo. It's the opening sentence of Luther's commentary on the Romans. The chief purpose of this letter, I'm quoting now, the chief purpose of this letter is to break down, to pluck up, and to destroy all wisdom and righteousness of the flesh, says Luther. Any works righteousness, says Paul. Any, any attempt to gain access to God's favor of our own merit is jumping to the sun. It's foolish. It's pointless. There's a much better way that God's provided. But first, Paul's going to trap us. Okay, but not in this intro. In this intro, he says some lovely things. We'll get into that in a sec. Um, okay, the structure of our book, we'll jump into this, we'll say the structure briefly and then we'll jump into the text. The structure of the book or this letter um, so is, is what I just said. Our need for Christ's righteousness, not our own. That's, that's the first 11 chapters. I'm just, this is a very non-technical, non-detailed outline, just a big, big broad overview outline. So the first 11 chapters, he's, he's making the case for why we need Christ's righteousness to make us right before the Lord, before the living God, and our own is just simply not going to do. Um, chapters 12 through 16, the rest of the book, speak of good works that we ought to embody and embrace as we receive his righteousness and rest in that righteousness. Okay? Um, so yeah, good works ought to show that we are relying on his work and his person. Uh, for us and his complete salvation of us received by faith so a little a little more um granularly romans 1 3 through uh romans 1 excuse me through 320 okay romans 1 through 320 320 is a hard stop 321 is a complete pivot which we'll get to but romans 1 through 320 is basically our righteousness is only wickedness we all deserve damnation all of us not a single exception jew or gentile not a single exception paul paul just paints everyone into a corner and then 321, this huge pivot, maybe the biggest in the Bible, through 11, verse 36. The last verse in chapter 11 is that basically that Christ saves us completely. He justifies us, 321 through chapter 5. He justifies us. He sanctifies us. That salvation working out, again, received by faith, but working out itself out over the course of our lives. And he glorifies us. That's chapters 6 through 8. It's all of him, not of us, for as many as he calls to himself his children, chapters 9 through 11. We simply receive his gift of complete salvation in Christ by faith alone. And then 12 through 16, as I said, implications of the gospel for the lives of Christians, Christ's body vitally united to him by faith. So, okay, that's it. That's all just a very, very, very brief, fast overview of Romans. Let's jump in to Romans 1, 1 through 15 in this magnum opus of Paul. Take a breath. I'm going to take a breath. Are we sure that we're sure that nobody else is out there? I don't know. What do you think? I'm sure it's dark. It's late. Okay. All right. Let's jump in. Again, I, may, I am going to eat into a little Q&A, but we'll be done at nine and we'll have some Q&A. Okay. I'm not introing any more for any other lecture. So give me grace. Give me grace. It's a theme in this book. Okay. Let's jump in. Let's read. This is the most important part other than praying of this time, reading God's actual word. The rest of it's going to be unpacking it. Um, let's read it together. Just for the sake of this... Um, 
lack of, the, of hearing this, I'm going to read it. That's okay. I, I, my preference is to have you guys share it, but um, I'll, I'll keep us on the ESV. If you don't have the ESV, that's fine. I'm going to read from the ESV, and uh, I'm going to start in Romans 1, verse 1. Paul. Now, again, stop. That's Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, first two weeks. That was it. <laughs> so we're going to make some more progress. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of, the, of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation, we'll kind of finish looking at that, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. We finish there next week again, reminder, this is like a, hey, come back. 16 and 17 are really the spark that lit, that lit the fire that, that really set the, the Reformation burning and really changed, changed the face of the world um, and, and have done so for the past 500 years. So do come back next week um, if you're singularly unimpressed with this week. But let's jump in now. Um, so there's a simple structure as far as I see it to this intro that Paul gives to his, um, to his best letter, his greatest letter, his magnum opus. By the way, um, this whole series is, we're just calling it Romans, um, God's Righteousness Revealed. From now on, too, just so you know, I'm going to, um, I'll have a, the song that we sing on one side, and I'll print it out for you. The other side will just be like the title of the lecture, and then you can take notes on that if you'd like. Um, so I'll have that for you moving forward. Um, but this is, I'm just really calling this Paul's letter to the Roman church, because it's really an intro. Um, where he's saying, hey, I'm Paul, you're the Roman church, and here's why I'm writing, okay? Um, so the first thing is, the first point is really just he's saying who he is, who he is, and some of his background, verse one, Paul, right? So who is the first, the first point? To whom is really the second point? Um, that's in verse seven, and who's he writing to? Not a trick question. The Romans. The Romans, the Roman church, the church in Rome, right? Um, and then Why? is the third point. So who, Paul, to whom, the church in Rome, and then why, thirdly, or for what reason? Verse eight, you see that in verse eight. Um, and, he's, and he's writing really, I just say, to bless them. Um, he says, I thank God for you. He's so thankful for them in verse eight. In verse 11, we see, we'll get more into this, but we see, Paul says, I long to see you. Sometimes we can think of Paul as like a brain on a stick. Um, he's an th- amazing, the- amazing theologian, um, it's amazing understanding of what God has done in history. Of He had the whole Old Testament memorized, probably, which he would have thought of more as the Hebrew Bible. But, um, but he says, I long to see you. We see his, his, his 
boiling over affection for these people that he's never even met. He loves with zeal. And I just want to say, sort of pause here for a second before we really dive in and just say, what about you? What about you? What about me? This kind of deep affection for other people marks those who follow Jesus. If, if you don't have a love for others, now, none of our love is perfect. None of our love is perfect. It never perfectly manifests. But if you don't have a love for others that's growing, you're, I just want to say, you're not his. That's the mark of having Christ in you, the God of love who lovingly gave his life for us, of having his spirit dwelling in us. Um, my, 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 um, my mentor, Dr. Doug Kelly, uh, systematic theology professor, he talks about, he said, you know, some, some elders in the church, some theologians, they have perfect the- reformed theology, but they're mean as snakes. Mm-hmm. And he says, those people don't know Jesus. Mm-hmm. They don't know Jesus. If you're not kind, if you're not growing in kindness, you're not Christ's. So now my saying, look, you look at my life and my heart and my struggle some, so many hours and days and go, man, that, based on that, what so I'm not trying to, okay, we, we all stumble and fall. Man, I, I'm so often unkind. But if that doesn't, if that's not in you, I don't care how perfect your theology is. So Paul is longing to see these people. Um, and he says that I owe you and all people a great debt. We'll get to that in a second. Um, well, man, I, write, I do write some, some, some things here. Um, I'm going to skip that because we do wrap up with it. Um, so let's jump in. Okay, who? Paul. Paul. So Paul um, was born about 10 years after Jesus. He was, ba- he was born in a place called Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. He uh, spoke and wrote fluent Greek and Hebrew, biblical Hebrew. He wasn't just conversant. He was fluent. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, um, who was the greatest teacher of the day. So it would be like, uh, we, have, we have one here who he's familiar with the Oxford system, grew up in Oxford, and in, in Oxford you still have the tutorial system where it's you and a tutor, or you, you and maybe a couple other people and a tutor. And it's, it's honestly, it's like, I think it's the best system of education in the world. You just get so much more out of that. You go to lectures, but then you're with the tutor and you get that one-on-one or one-on-three or one-on-two hands-on treatment. And Paul had that with the best teacher of the day. He was also classically educated. So basically, I mean, Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, he was, he was edu- he had the best possible education, um, possibly even in Latin as well. Um, he quotes, for instance, and if you look at Acts chapter 17, that's a lot of sort of Paul's missionary journeys and, and him in action. And he gives his testimony at least three times um, in an extended version uh, or three times in an extended way. Um, but in Acts 17, he's in Athens at Mars, on Mars Hill, and he's speaking to all sorts of people that have gathered, philosophers and, and, and various people that just love talking and arguing and philosophizing and, and entertaining new ideas. And on the fly, as he's presenting the gospel in this very pagan environment, he quotes from two minor Greek poets, just off the top, in Greek. And so um, that's, just an, that's just an example of his blazing intellect and his education, but he's also, as we talked about just a second ago, he's a heart on fire. He's worshiping the Lord with all of his mind, with all of his heart, with all of his strength. He's a man who's, my friend, my uh, mentor, another mentor that married us used to say, like, that guy's lasered. I know a guy right now that just met a woman that he just asked to marry him in Serbia, 
And like he is absolutely, he's worthless in pretty much everything else in his life right now because he is just so lasered and locked on this gal. And um, if you're married, you've possibly still that way, hopefully, but you remember there was a season where, you know, you were just locked on to this person, this man or this woman. And um, Paul is lasered onto Jesus Christ. He's absolutely fixed. Um, Romans fifteen twenty four. speaking of a heart on fire and his deep affection, struck me a couple weeks ago as I was reading through Romans, Romans fifteen twenty four. the last phrase in particular where Paul says, he's kind of wrapping up to the Roman church and he says, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. He's talking about coming to them, right? And he's saying, I want to come see you once I've enjoyed your company for a while, then we'll, we'll, I'll move on. Um, but it's a reminder that Paul was not just an evangelist, apostle, theologian, cyborg, right? He was a person with needs and he loved people and he needed to be with them and he longs to be with these people. Um, he enjoyed their company. He enjoyed spending time with them. He really liked them. Um, his letters in Romans uh, chapter 16, especially brim with affection for saints that he ministers to and with and he names them. Um, he, he was in a sense, the super Jew. He knew he was, he was trained in the ways of the Pharisees. He knew the whole, he had the whole Hebrew Bible probably memorized. Um, he knew all the laws. He had followed them punctiliously from his youth, or so he thought. And he based his whole life on that. And, and yet, in God's perfect wisdom, he called the super Jew, Paul, to be the minister extraordinaire to the Gentiles. Wonderful. Um, so that was really the call on Paul's life, was to be the apostle. He's known as the apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. Um, partly because of his education, partly because of how well he knows the scriptures. And he can say, this is, this is God's plan for the fullness of time. This is what he's done in Christ. You see that in Acts 9, 15, Romans 15, 8 through 9 and 16, 2 Timothy 4, 17, um, Acts 9, 22 and 26, where he shares his testimony. Um, and there's so much more. So let's look at the text together. We may need to just go through verse 7 and then stop, but we'll, we'll see. And that's fine. Um, it. You know, we'll, we'll, flex, we'll flex and move and groove as, as the weeks go on together. But, um, okay, so verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Um, that word, servant, also, uh, okay, so Paul, a servant or slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Let's just, let's just pick that apart. Let's, let's talk about that for a bit. That word is doulos in the Greek, and it can mean slave as well as servant. Um, but it's not the kind of slave that we think about here in America, um, um, in, in our, you know, in, in our um, massively sinful uh, slave trade that is part of this, the sordid history of this country. Um, that's not the kind, of, the kind of slave that Paul's talking about. He's talking about a slave that was basically treated as a member of the household, but that had willfully bound himself to the master because of the beneficence of the master, because of love for the master. Um, but he calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. And he's called to be an apostle. Um, the fact that he realizes that he, he, he doesn't have rights. He, Jesus does all of, Jesus orders Paul. Je, he's, he, Jesus is his master. Um, he, he surrendered his, his perceived rights. Um, that, that colors Paul's world. He sees himself as called. This is a forecast. It's just one word of Paul's soteriology, his theology of salvation. Um, he, he realizes that he didn't find Jesus. Jesus came. If you look at Acts 9, it, it shows this. Jesus came and found him. And that's actually, and we'll get much more into this, but that's actually the case, even if it didn't seem like it to you, that's actually the case with each and every one of us, with every single person who comes to Christ. We come to Christ because he calls us to himself. Because as Paul says in another letter in Ephesians 2, we are, before Christ calls us to himself, before he makes us 
alive and able to see him in his beauty and to say yes to him and to receive him by faith. We are, are we asleep in our sins and trespasses? Yeah. No, we're, we're dead, right? We're dead. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. Dead men, dead men can't respond. So Jesus, Jesus calls Paul. He calls all who are his. He doesn't lose a single one. Um, okay. So he's an apostle, which means a messenger or an envoy. Uh, Jesus called Paul to be a man on mission to deliver a message. This was his single focus in life. He was lasered. What was his message? Um, what message was he set apart to deliver, to announce? Um, I think of in Edinburgh, where I spent a few years um, doing, doing, some, um, doing some work in the Old Testament. Um, there's, a, there was, there's an old, there are a bunch of different sort of statues and memorials, and there's one of, of a, it's like a stone sort of chancel in the middle of a square by, by um, um, St. Giles on High Street, where between the castle and the, and the palace where John Knox would preach. And it's, um, it's where the town crier would come and announce, you know, before the internet, before phones, before any of that. Like, he would come and announce the big news from some other, from some, from some other city. And I think of Paul as that. He would come into a city, and what would he, what would he announce? Um, he would announce the good news of God, the euangelion, the, the evangel, the gospel. Um, and the gospel means good news, right? The euangelion, the gospel, we say gospel, gospel, gospel. Sometimes we forget it means good news. Um, and, and you, we've probably heard this, but it's good to remind ourselves that the gospel, the good news isn't just, the gospel isn't just information. So we're not here just to crunch info, right? Um, the gospel isn't just information, it's news. It's news to be announced. It's news to be shared. It's news to be proclaimed. And it's not just news, it's really good news, which means it has to be preceded by bad news. Like, there's good, the, the good news is, hey, the war's over. But that's only good if there was a war. War's bad news. So, so, so Paul, that's why Paul, starting in chapter 1, verse 18, in three weeks, we'll get to it, he uh, front loads this book with a ton, can I say crap ton, on this lecture I just did, of really bad news, like horrible. And it's, it, we're not going to spend so long in it, so you may not feel like we're slogging, but we are going to spend a couple weeks in it, three weeks, I think. Um, and so he, but that has to be the case before, so that by the time you get to the euangelion, the good news, it's like, it's like you've been held underwater and you're just, you're waiting to breathe and you're about to, your lungs are about to explode and you're about to pass out and then someone lets you up. I mean, that's what it feels like. <clears throat> I'm about to cough. By the time you get to Romans 3, verse 21. And that's the way it should feel. And sometimes I think we don't, we don't sit on that long enough to think about what we've been saved from. Um, okay, so what is the gospel? Okay, we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's what I wrote in the notes. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Verse 2, verse 2. We'll just kind of plod through here. Um, what is he saying here? Basically, which he promised. Okay, the gospel. So he's an apostle. His, his focus in life is to proclaim the gospel to anyone under heaven. Verse 2, which he promised. The gospel is something he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What's he saying? What's Paul saying here, basically? What's the nutshell? Of the, what's the info he's trying to con- convey here to the Roman church? That is true. That's not what he's trying to say here, I would say. And even if you think about it, there were Jews and Gentiles in this church, mainly Gentile probably, but it's mixed. Even to think about it from a Jewish perspective. Yeah. What, Paul, what is this new thing? What is this new thing that you're going on about? Aren't you a Jew? 
What about, what about the Hebrew Bible? What about the Old Testament? What about the centuries of God speaking? What would Paul say to that? They've all been pointing to Christ. This isn't new. If you read it right, and that's what Paul will help us do, he goes, hey, let me show you how Jesus and only Jesus makes sense of everything that's come before. Not just of the Old Testament, but because of the Old Testament, of God's plan for, since before the beginning of time. This is, it all and only makes sense because of the announcement I'm about to make. So this thing's not out of the blue. This new thing, it's not out of the blue. It's been announced for centuries. Like Jordan said, God has been telling us it was coming and at last it has come. Um, the Hebrew Bible had been announcing or in prophesying or prophesying the coming of Messiah, Christ. So Messiah, Mashiach is the Old Testament, is the Hebrew word for anointed kings, priests, um, prophets were anointed. I believe prophets were, um, were anointed and, and with oil, but that really symbolized the anointing of the spirit of the living God coming on, on you and setting you apart for a task, um, that was given to you by God. Um, so Mashiach anointed one Christ is, it's not Jesus last name, right? We've all heard that. I mean, it can seem like it. Jesus Christ, okay. Jesus was his first name. It's a title, right? And it's the same thing as Mashiach. It's the same thing as Messiah, but it's the Greek anointed one, the Christ, the Christus. Um, okay, so, so the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, had been announcing the coming of this Messiah or Christ for centuries. He is the single point of the, their focus. The law and the writings and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, converge on him. If you can imagine an hourglass that's put on its side. The scriptures start with the widest possible lens, God and all things, creation, heavens and earth. And then they quickly converge onto one man and a people that come from him, one people, Israel. And then by the time we get to Jesus, it converges to one promised one that came from that one tribe of those people and a cross. And when Jesus is hanging on that cross, you have the narrowest possible point that everything in all creation, the entire story of everything, is, is pointing to, is funneling us toward, and is hinging on. And then if you notice, after the Gospels, after the resurrection of the, of the Son of God, which Paul talks about here, there's an explosion outward again, all the way to a new creation. And at this point, we're 20, 20 or 30 years into Jesus' resurrection and ascension, and we already are starting to see that all of the Roman world has already heard this thing that's turned the world upside down. And this is the history of the church. Why can't it happen again? Why can't it happen here? Why can't it happen now? Why can't it happen through a Romans lecture over 30 weeks? Do it, do it again, Lord. Do it again in this city of nations that will go out to all the world. Do it, do it again. Um, so, let me extrapolate something that I hope will, will help encourage you um, and root you. The scriptures announced that this would happen through the Messiah, that he would make a way for us to be saved. And through that, he would begin the process of restoring all things. And, he, and that he will finish that as the promise. He will finish that and he will come back. He will come again. He came the first time. He came into history. He's coming again. He's reigning. Um, the scriptures announced it, therefore it happened. When God tells us something in his word, it will happen. It will be done. He will do it. It may seem like he's being slow, but God is never slow. Um, I think of that, that scene from, uh, of course, I mentioned C.S. Lewis, and now I have to mention Tolkien, but the scene from um, Fellowship of the Ring where, where Gandalf says, uh, Frodo says, you're late, you know? And he's like coming up on his wagon to the birthday party, and, and what does Gandalf say? A wizard is never late. He always arrives precisely when he means to, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and um, that's, that's right. And that also applies to the Lord. The Lord is never late. He often loves to come in the 11th hour as we wait for him. 
because he gets more glory that way and we get work done. We get work done, right? Romans 5, we'll get to that chapter. As we wait on him, as our character is being made more like Jesus and as our hope is increasing. Um, So it may seem slow to us because there are lots of variables that we don't know about, that he does know about, and that all matter to him and he's orchestrating them all. Our lives are short. He's eternal. We're impatient. He's infinitely patient. So God said, just a litany, um, and then verse 3, God said he would send the Messiah in the scriptures. Um, they all converge on him, with the prophets especially. Sort of the law, the law especially sort of whispers Messiah. As early as Genesis 3, verse 15, we have the whisper of the one who's going to come and save us. The whisper. But by the time we get to the prophets, there's a megaphone, and they're shouting that judgment's coming, but, but with the judgment, a savior, right? Sometimes some of the, some of the um, prophets, literally it's like the whole prophet is judgment, and you're just like, Debbie Downer, man. I mean, these guys were not popular. They were not popular. They were run out of town. They were thrown in wells. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. But you have a, one book in particular, you have a whole, most of it's judgment, and then literally the last verse is the salvation's coming. It's like, okay, well, there's an uptick. So, God said he would send the Messiah. He said he himself would come, Malachi 3.1. He did. Emmanuel, God with us, and the virgin will conceive and bear a son, Isaiah. God said he would bear our sin and curse and save us, and he did. He promised he would rise. He did. He says he is reigning, um, um, he, he is reigning over the earth from heaven, over all nations and kings. He is. He says he's working all things for your good if you're his in Christ. He is. He says he's making all things new. He is. He says he will return and make all things fully new, do away with all sin and evil and death itself and reign among us. He will. He says he will wipe away every tear from every eye of his children. Revelation 21. He will do that. My brothers and sisters, God keeps his promises. He has kept them. He will keep them. We can bank on that. The sun may not rise tomorrow, but God will keep his word for the scriptures cannot be broken. Okay, I'm going to steal maybe 10 minutes um, as we race through this. We may have to end in verse 7. We'll see. Um, so chapter, verse 3 rather, um, concerning his son. So the prophets denounced it. This isn't something, this new thing isn't out of the blue. It's a fulfillment of everything God's been saying. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Um, we have a door closed on us. Okay. The Greek says, so, so the ESV says, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. It's interesting um, the Greek says, so the Greek is what Paul wrote in. That's the original. Uh, the Greek says, who is descended or came from the seed of David. For some reason, the ESV leaves that out. Uh, it, literally, the Greek word is spermatos. Okay? I don't have to tell you. That's easy for you to translate, right? Who is descended, who came from Jesus, this promised Mashiach, this Christos, he came from the spermatos, the seed of David, according to the flesh. The KJV, of course, the King James, of course, includes this because the King James is literally, it's antiquated language, but it's a wonderful, very literal, in most places, translation of the Hebrew Bible and the, and the Greek New Testament. Um, what's Paul doing here? Paul underlines his real and full humanity, Jesus is, by saying both that God's son came from the seed of David and immediately following by saying according to the flesh. Paul does not want us to miss at least two things here in this intro. Number one, the Messiah is God's son, and he became a real human, not a superhuman. 
Um, I have a, I had, there was an administrator in my seminary and he, I was working in the bookstore one day and he came in and he said, I wonder if, uh, I wonder if Jesus could have done like perfect calculus. And that to me is an expo- is a, is an instance of a person who doesn't fully, who doesn't really grasp in that sense, at least the full humanity of Jesus. He knew all things, but he, I can almost assure you, he did not know how to do perfect calculus. Why? Because he, he, he left, he remained God, but he left so much of the privilege and the power of, of who he is and was as God, his kenosis, Paul says in Philippians 2 is the Greek word. He emptied himself of all the power and the privilege of being God while remaining fully God and became weak, fully human, crucifiable. And was fully connected to the Father by the Spirit the whole time he was here. And then on the cross, something very, very strange for our salvation happened where he was actually abandoned by the Father. But we'll get to that later. Um, so I think this was a betrayal of this man's misunderstanding of what Paul's trying to get across here. Paul, Jesus was not a superhuman who could do perfect calculus. Theo's done a ton of stuff in his PhD dissertation at Rice on chemistry that Jesus wouldn't have understood. Not because he wasn't fully divine. He remained fully God, but he also had normal, non-sinful human limitations. In every way. In every way. Um, so G- Jesus was limited in every way that Adam was while remaining, while being fully God. Okay, so he had to be a real and a full human to represent real and full humans, though racked and broken in every part by our sin, and he was not. Um, the Messiah came from David's, from David, from David's seed, from his sperm. Okay, this not only underlines his uh, humanity; it highlights his fulfilling the Hebrew scriptures about the Messiah as well. The Messiah had to come from David's line. Jesus did. He would fulfill the promises that God gave to David about his line ruling over the entire earth forever. You see that in Second Samuel seven, First Chronicles twenty-eight. You see traces of Psalm 2 and 110 in here, Daniel 7. Um, I could go on, but those are some big, some big ones that Paul's pulling on here. Um, he would, the Messiah would be, we know from the scriptures, he would be a Jewish man from the tribe of Judah, from the line, and that's the tribe of David, from, the tribe, from, from David's line, and Jesus was that. So Paul, that's very important to Paul. Um, only a man can represent humans, man, men and women. Um, only God can save us. So the God-man, born of a virgin, whose father was and always has been God. Fully God, fully man, came to bring us back to God, broken humans that we are. Um, Verse 4, the way Paul talks here about the resurrection is instructive. um, It challenges me. It pushes out the boundaries of my understanding of the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. In what way? Let's go ahead and read it again. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, so he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So this Jesus is the Son of God in power. Two, two things. Um, in what way and, and what does this mean? It means that, number one, he's defeated death. Not death like little d death. Like he came, he came back to life. The, the, the resurrection was not a resuscitation. It was not just a coming back to life of a man. It was, it was one man, the God man, taking 
on the enemy of physical death and of soul death for humanity, for a new humanity, for anyone who would look to him and defeating that, that curse that's caused by sin and burying it and leaving it in the ground. So he was dying, he was dying for anyone who would look to him to remove the curse of physical death. Just why do, why do we, let me ask you this, why do we all die? Why do we die? Did God make us to die? Sin. I can tell Jordan is a, um, he's a curve breaker. Uh, it's exactly right. We die because we're sinners. We wouldn't, if we would not die, if we were not sinners, we die. It's empirical proof of the fact. Some people say, oh, death's a friend. Oh, that's just the way things are supposed to be. No, the universe dies and we die because of our sin and it is infected the universe. Paul talks about that in Romans 8, starting in verse 18. We'll get to that. Amazing. Which I think that's an exposition of, I think Paul's there um, unpacking the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll get to that too, probably. But um, so we die because of we're sin, and actually that is a portal to an eternal unraveling, to an eternal perishing, um, a soul, a soul death, a soul death, and a body death. I mean, we will all, every single person that dies will receive a resurrected body, some to to life in, in a new creation, uh, who trust in Jesus and what He's done for them, and and some to everlasting torment, and we'll talk about that too. Um, and so, but all with bodies all with resurrected bodies. And so we're not just going to be spirits floating around, not at all. Um, and so Jesus came to defeat, in his resurrection, he defeated capital D, death. Separation from God um, and hell. And, um, and in so doing, he's shown himself to be the second Adam. And Paul talks about that in Romans 5. And God's son, God in the flesh. So what Adam plunged us into, Jesus lifts us out of. That's why Paul, and we'll get much more to this, obviously, when we get to that text. That's why Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. So there's a sense in which there were, Jesus was the second human. The first human, Adam, created perfect without sin. Everyone after him, except for Jesus, completely colored by, in every part, by sin. Uh, uh, you know, totally depraved, totally corrupted. Uh, um, severed from relationship with God who can't, who can't look on sin and be at peace with, with us in our sin. Um, hating God and his rule. And Paul talks much more about this, so that's all I'll say for now. Jesus was the second Adam. He was the second one in history. There wasn't, there wasn't a second one until he came along who was a perfect human who, like Adam, represented all humans who would be born from him as, as the first race was born from Adam. And so, and Paul talks more, much more about this, but he's, he's kind of giving away some of his themes here in this intro. Um, he's also shown himself, Jesus has not only to be the second Adam, but shown himself to be the fulfiller of the prophecies, the Hebrew scriptures and their convergence point. They all point to him and he fulfills them. He says this in Matthew 5, 17. Don't think I've come to abolish the law, but to fill it, to fulfill it. He says this twice in Luke 24 and other places. And this is how the New Testament writers this is how they write. This is how they interpret the Hebrew Bible. They say, this, Jesus is the one that came to make sense of the scriptures, that fulfills them. And there's so much there that we'll unpack over the course of these next 29 weeks. Um, he came in power. Why does Paul append Son of God with this little phrase, in power? Isn't that redundant? Don't we know the Son of God came in power? Um, I think it's shorthand for what I said above, the power of defeating death, of overturning the whole system and starting a new one. Um, it's like the red shift in the universe became a blue shift when Jesus rose from the dead early on that Sunday morning. Um, Paul's going to unpack this later in the letter, and, and so will we. Um, let me just finish with this, and then we'll go to question time. 
And what we'll do is we'll just pick up, um, we'll pick up with verse 5, and then we'll just, we'll go from 5 to 15 next week, and then we'll just push, we'll go 16 and 17 the following week. Um, and then, and then after that, we'll go 18 to the rest of the chapter uh, and be done with chapter one. Um, so, okay, because I do want to have 20 minutes or so for questions. So, verse four, um, let's continue in verse four, and then we'll start verse five next week. Um, Christopher Watkin has a book, he's an Englishman from Yorkshire, and he has a book called Biblical Critical Theory that's phenomenal. Um, came out in November. I'm about two thirds of the way through it. Um, um, he says this, um, on page 441, he's quoting a guy named Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, another Englishman. Um, they're everywhere. Uh, who was once Bishop of Durham and is an author. I think he's at St. Andrews now. He says, Paul's, Paul's kind of, what he's telling us, uh, is, is conveyed by some of the things, these things I want to read. The message of the resurrection is that this world matters. This world matters. Jesus rose he rose in his flesh as someone who took the curse of sin and everything that corrupts us and that has bled into this creation and corrupts creation into himself and onto himself, and he buried it. And when he rose, he rose a new type of human, impervious to death and actually unable to sin. We have to believe if Jesus was tempted previously, he could have sinned as a true human. Otherwise, what's temptation mean? He rose, able to pass through walls, able to teleport. We see that in Luke 24 and other places. Um, but he was able to eat. He has a body. He says, a ghost doesn't have a body. Touch me. But what did he have? He had, or I should say here, he had the holes. He says to Thomas, who's doubting, put your, put your hand on my side. He's the same Jesus, but he's altered. And so he is committed. If, if God committed himself to creation with the first creation, and he did when he said he made all things, and he said, it's good. By the way, not Platonic. Platonism has crept into, especially the early church, but even church today, matter is less good than spirit. That's not Judeo-Christian. That's not biblical. God made all things and said, good, good, very good. Matter, spirit, man, animal, all creation, very good. Sin is what comes in and corrupts matter. Jesus in the incarnation, in becoming one of us, and then in the resurrection, in the most, in the biggest possible way, is saying, he's endorsing his creation and saying, I'm, I came to restore this creation, not some other creation, this creation, because I don't give up on what I make. And so we as Christians, and I'll read some of this, but we as Christians have the deepest theological living in Christ reasons for, for caring about the restoration of creation, but also thinking we can't make a utopia here on earth. Everything, it, Jesus has committed himself through death, all the way to death, to taking hell upon himself. He's committed himself to, to this creation, to making it good again, to restoring it, to going down to the depths of its depravity and brokenness. So we can too, knowing that until he returns, it's not going to be perfect. We don't have to be utopians but knowing that it's going to be. And so every effort that we make in Christ for restoration of relationships, of matter, of culture, of work, from arguing a case in court to doing brain surgery to wiping our baby's butts and putting a diaper on and everything in between matters 
in Christ because of his resurrection from the dead as the same man. There's going to be continuity. Um, let me just read a few quotes here. I, I want to jump straight to Luther, but he's the last in a, in a series of a few quotes. These are just, I think, good quotes. So that was right. The message of the resurrection is that this world matters. It's not like he could have just wiped it and started over. He didn't do that. The resurrection tells us that's not what he did. So we can care about the brokenness here. And we should, more, and we have deep theological reasons more than anybody else. Watkin, but we can be okay with it being partial now, right? Because he's going to come and make it full one day. We, have a, we know he's going to do it because it's according to his word. He's already been crucified. He's already resurrected. He's, he's already begun work for the past 2,000 years through his church. Don't you think he's going to finish what he starts? Don't you think he's going to actually keep the rest of his promises and come again and make it all new? Of course he is. Watkins says this, The resurrection allows Christians to be content neither with living as if this world is all important nor living as if the world is unimportant. The present age is neither our final destination nor a lost cause. Um, Watkins uses a word I've never come across. I had to look it up. He calls the resurrection of Jesus his neg- negentropic or negentropic victory. Has anyone heard that word? Negentropic or negentropic. What does negentropic mean? It means reducing entropy. He, he reversed the process of entropy that sin, uh, that sin started. And we see it again in the redshift of the dying universe. But we're not headed toward toward and ultimate heat, heat death. That is not the message of the scriptures because of the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul's announcing that here in this little intro. And he'll get much more into it later. We will too. Um, Paul, in another letter to the, another church, this one in Corinth, he says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor is not in vain. The message of Ecclesiastes is basically that if without the resurrection, everything we do is in vain. If we are going to end in a heat death, then no amount of relationship with the one you love, walks along the beach, beautiful sunset, time like this, no, nothing, no act of kindness, no murder, nothing in between, none of it matters. If the heat death is the end, and that's a period, nothing matters. Nothing. Even if it feels like it does. But that's not the message of the scriptures because of the resurrection. You can see how all things converge and hinge on on this work of Christ, on this God-man. Watkins says again, the resurrection, and I'm drawing to a close, I'll quote Bauckham and the Luther, and then we're done for the night. And the, uh, Questions? Um, and maybe some answers, but... Uh, Watkins says again, um, on page 442 of Biblical Critical Theory, he says, the resurrection does not detach us from this world and lead us to cloister ourselves away as we wait for the second coming. Okay? There's a massive evacuationist heresy in the church. I call it a heresy. In this part of... America, in this part of the world, I should say, in this segment of time, actually. It's only been for the past about 200 years, and it's really only in the American South, and I think it's just really, really, really bad, really bad theology that doesn't take the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension seriously. I don't don't think it interprets it correctly. So we're not evacuation, it's just waiting to get pulled out of this earth for heaven. Um, What we wait for, he says, is not an escape from nature, For as Herman Babink repeatedly insists, grace does not abolish nature, it restores and eventually perfects it. So we can commit to, and we should commit to, seeing this dirt, these people loved and restored uh, by degrees, imperfectly of course, knowing that what we do is we're planting seeds, we're planting seeds, they're one day going to grow, they're one day because of Christ's resurrection and return going to grow into beautiful things. Um, God's commitment to this world is the sculptor's commitment to a block of marble. He neither leaves it a block, nor does he um, 
chuck it and do away with it. He uses that block and he makes something beautiful out of it. He transforms it. As Richard Balkum notes, the coming kingdom of God is both the desire we never reach and the goal we must anticipate. And finally, of course, I'll give Luther the last word. When asked what he'd do if he knew Jesus was returning tomorrow, some of you heard me say this. So, so the, the great reformer, he was asked, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? What do you say? Anyone know? I know some of you do. You've been around long enough. I can tell by John's face he knows. Luther said, he said something that might surprise you. He said, um, I wonder if I come over here if it's recordable. Um, he did not say that. Luther, uh, when asked if Jesus, he said, if you knew Jesus was returning tomorrow, what would you do? He said, I'd plant a tree. Think of how well it would do. What, there's so much theology packed into that homely, concrete uh, answer from Luther. Um, and we'll unpack it together as we walk throughout this, this amazing book. But he understood that Jesus came to, he came to restore the creation, the good earth and image bearers that he made. Um, not, not to start over, but to do a new thing and to get rid of sin and death and selfishness. And, um, and he knew that basically that because of Jesus' resurrection, that what we're doing in everything that we do in Jesus' name by faith is we're planting seeds. They're going to grow for eternity in the new creation. They matter because of the resurrection. Um, so take hope. Um, we're going to start in verse five. Uh, I need to mark that with my pen or else I'm, I'm notoriously forgetful and absent-minded. So uh, we'll start in verse five. We'll, we will make it through verse 15. Believe it or not, there's not that much left here. And then we'll do 16 and 17 the following week. Um, let me pray. And then we can, uh, we can have, let's just say 15 minutes. I'll keep you five minutes over. Or we'll see how long it takes, but a good 15 minutes for, for Q&A. Lord, thank you so much for this time. A bit different today. We had intro matter. We we, we crept in a little late because of the door and it was the first time, but Lord, uh, we got to see your sunset. We got to be together. We got to open up your word and crack into the first few verses of this amazing, this amazing, the greatest work of theology ever written. Not so that we can cram our heads with good theology, but so we can know you, the resurrected and living Lord who has literally conquered death, paid for sin, and through your own person made the way, the only way, back to the Father. And because of that, everything matters. Thank you, Lord. Uh, Thank you for this book. Thank you that the same God, you're the same God who made the sunset, that gave us this word, and that came to rescue us. Thank you for being, for caring about beauty. Thank you for putting taste buds on our tongues and, and, and not making everything taste the same. Um, thank you that every single person here is different and made in your image and you, you gave yourself infinite, experienced infinite pain and abandonment by the Father out of your great love for them to win them back to yourself, to rescue them and to, um, with the great promise that you're making all things new and that you're going to come back and that you're reigning now. So we bless you. Um, would this, um, it's, it, you know, it's been a bit rushed. It's been, you know, uh, this and that, but would, would you, by your spirit, in our hearts and minds, even this week as we go from here, continue to exalt yourself, to give us hope anchored in you and what you've done in history and the fact that you're reigning now and, and that you're going to return and make all things new? Would you make us 
Would you make us, would you, would you put that gospel in us and would it come out in, in, in our sharing? Not even being able to repress, not even being able to help ourselves. But as we'll get to next week, even with Paul um, identifying with him more and more and saying, I have a debt. I have a debt because of what I knew and because of, because of what I've received and I'm walking him in Christ and what he's done for me. I have a debt to discharge. Not only am I not ashamed of the gospel, but I, I owe it to those around me to tell them what God has done for me in Christ. Would you do that, Lord? Would you do that in our hearts? Would you, would you bring revival to this city? Would you bring revival to Galleria through this time? We're asking for these things that we know that are your heart and that you can do. In, in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Um, okay, so next week, verse 5 through 15. Um, hit me. Q&A. Let's go. I'll, I'll try to remember to re- repeat the question. Okay, I have one. Come on. So, I've wrestled a lot with this idea of matter and spirituality, you know, like you're, you're talking right at the very end there, being of equal importance. It's so hard for me to get it, if I'm understanding correctly, and I may be understanding incorrectly, from my head to, to my heart, especially as a stay-at-home mom now who yeah. came from, you know, being in full-time ministry, that, you know, what I'm doing with my kids or, you know, even, you know, wiping the baby like you're talking about yeah. is as important as yeah. going out and sharing the gospel. Yeah. Because I am, it is, it is that feeling of like, you know, some things are passing away, but, it, but if I share the gospel and somebody repents and comes to Christ, yeah. that, that changes their eternity. Yeah. Whereas if I'm just at home, and I understand, you know, investing in my children spiritually, but kind right. of that inside. Yeah, that's great. Is even a question. No, I don't know if it is either, but I get the question, I think. And I think it's a great question. There's so much to be said, isn't there? I, I, let me start here. I, I'm, and by the way, I think increasingly, like I said it in my prayer, I said it to you, it, this felt like a race. It's always going to be fast-paced, but there's not going to be any intro material from now on. So I think I do want it to be more of a dialogue. And, and, and thank you for saving your questions to the end. But I do want this to be a dialogue. So I, I'd love to hear from y'all. So I, I need to maybe repeat it for the recording, but um, Rachel, I mean, basically a wonderful question just about, see if I can repeat it to your satisfaction. Knowing that wiping baby butts, being a stay-at-home mom right now, teaching them, doing all the amazing things that moms do, knowing that that is important, but it feels more important sometimes to be sharing the gospel with someone that's going to hell and to see them come to Christ and how how, we're wrestling with this. We all are, right? So in in our own various ways. So um, it's not to diminish the importance of sharing the gospel with people. Like, if, 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 if Paul tells us anything, even in this intro, we'll see this especially in, in bright colors next week as we get through verse 15. Um, and, he, and he says in verse 14 and 15, like, I'm a debtor. Like, I, I'm, a, I'm in debt to you in Rome. I owe you. Not because you've paid me, because I've, I've been giving something that I can't keep. It has to get passed to you. So he, he feels this. It's so important. Next great question. Um, I, let me just start by saying this and then maybe pass it off to someone else. But I'm so encouraged that, okay, let me, let me say a tree and, and, and let me start with a tree and move to wood. Um, we, we finished with the tree of Luther. So let me start with the tree and answering the first question. Um, trees are, okay, so like bamboo. That's not a tree, but bamboo, have you ever heard like it's, um, super slow growing at first. Apparently it can take like four years 
to form a root system and you have to, it has to get watered and all the things that plants need, you know, light and moisture and all that and, and, and proper soil. But like, it could be super frustrating because for four years it's basically building its root system. So for four years, you're waiting for it to grow and you're not seeing anything. But on the fifth year, it's apparently one of the fastest growing organisms. It'll grow up to 18 inches a day. So my point is that the root system, without that root system growing where you're not seeing any growth, that, that, that growth, that amazing growth of fifth year wouldn't happen. Let me, so that's, that's a tree. Before I move to wood, let me just point this out about Jesus' ministry and then I'll, and then I'll move to wood. Jesus' ministry, I was encouraged by this this morning as I was despairing about some things. And I, in my quiet time, God just brought me to my bit in Mark where as I'm reading in my quiet time, he, um, Jesus in Mark, he picks out his 12 and he spends most of his time with his 12. And, you know, um, Master Plan of Evangelism by um, Coleman, Rod, Rodney Coleman, um, Robert, Robert Coleman. Uh, is all about this. Like the master's plan for the, evangel- the, ch- the evangelism of the nations was basically, I mean, it's a bit of an overstatement, but basically was to invest in 12 guys for three years, for a long time. To like really, and that is a wonderful, so the idea being that like, it's a similar thing where for, for three years, I mean, he could have done it in a lot of ways, but he basically just plowed into like a very small handful of dudes that, by the way, even after his resurrection, when he was literally ascending to the Father, are still asking the question, if you don't believe me, look it up in Acts 1 verse 6. Now are you going to, is now the time that Israel's going to topple Rome? (laughs) As he's going up to heaven, they're still completely clueless, which is encouragement to all of us for obvious reasons, but also, man, the difference the Holy Spirit makes. But all that to say, so Jesus, I mean, you could, in a comic version, you could even be, see him being like, all right, Father, lower me down. Like, hang on, this isn't, you know, or like, I told you. You know, he, he's not worried because he's going to send them his spirit and everything's going to make sense and they're going to be empowered for ministry, right? The difference between Peter denying Christ and then Peter standing up and going, we're not drunk. Let me quote from Joel 2. Bam, you know, you crucified him, but he died for you. I mean, it's, un- it's the difference is the Holy Spirit, the risen Christ in Peter. So my point is, so, so Jesus, it's similar to like, Wiping butt. That's his version of wiping baby butts, right? Okay, so let me move to the last thing, and then I'd love to hear what y'all have to say, but the last thing would be um, wood. I'm super encouraged by something that I don't think I think about enough, and I don't think most of us do, and that is that Jesus had about, let's say, 33 to 37 years on the earth. We're not sure exactly, but he died in his mid-30s. For the first 30 years or so, he was a carpenter and a stonemason. Usually carpentry involves stonemasonry. So he was a blue-collar dude. Have you ever shaken a stonemason's hand, by the way? The dude was a dude. He, and he, he, was, he worked with stone and wood as a craftsman, learning a craft, apprenticing under his father for decades. He had 33 years to change planet, to change creation. And for nine-tenths of it, he worked with stone and wood. But that readied him for the three years that would change the world. So, and he didn't denigrate that. He didn't, so it's so easy, but I, I'm encouraged by those things. I, I guess the point in all those that I'm trying to make is, and, I, and I'll send you a quote by, um, a really encouraging quote on, on how the next to securing, seeing that our own salvation is secure. The education of children is the most, it's the reason that God's put us on this earth. It's the most important thing we can do. So there are some, 
really encouraging quotes for, for you and for others of us um, that are doing these things that just seem like we just want to bang our heads against a wall. And it's like, what, how is this making a difference? But that's the way God set things up. Last thing I'll say, Abraham, we're, we're in such an individualistic culture, but Abraham, uh, the, the promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, right? It's to, it's to basically, not basically, it is to see creation completely restored through him, right? And he's, he's reckoned as righteous by believing that God's going to do that, right? Same way we're reckoned as righteous. He believes in God's word, which he's looking ahead to Jesus. We look back to Jesus. And he is reckoned as, with a right, as if he's righteous with the righteousness of another God. But the blessing is that he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless every family of the earth through you. The blessing is for families. A family is the most basic social unit. You want to know what's wrong with our country? Families are falling apart. That's what's wrong with our country. Like nobody ever mentions it, but it's so important. And if you didn't spend that time with your kids, they'd be lost probably. Like it's so, so I, such a great question. I can't encourage you strongly enough that God, it's so foundational. And I think God's shown us, he's incarnated how foundational it is. And I just want to encourage you that you're doing a great thing. And that, not only are those kids going to minister to folks, your family is, and you are in ways you don't even know. So have you ever read Theology of the Ordinary by Canlis? Okay. So good. Finish it and then read it again. Um, Okay. But who, uh, that was some stuff. Anyone else? Great question. Want to offer some uh, attempted an answer or some encouragement? Yeah. It's like, you know, you get, um, you get the, the doorway to the Psalms. Like there's one songbook of God's people and it's the Psalms, right? And it's like kind of right in the middle of the Bible. So it sort of holds the Bible together in a sense, certainly the Hebrew Bible together. It's like the middle part. And, um, and, and, and in the same section that I quoted from Walken, he says, the Christians are a singing people. We're singing, we're singing people because we, we, we're, we, we have something to sing about. We're not just the people that recite. We're not just people that memorize. We're not just people that bow down five times. We are a singing people because, because we have been saved through no good of our own. There's a joy there. There's a rejoicing at the heart of Christianity. There's feasting as well as fasting. There's a balance. Um, but Psalm 1 is the, int- it's the doorway. Every scholar will tell you Psalm 1 and 2 are the doorway into this songbook. And the first psalm, of course, is built around this idea of a tree. And again, it's... How does, how do, what's the, flour, the tree flourishes no matter what is thrown at it. You can imagine the tree being an amazing evangelist. Like he is the blessed man. He, he's doing everything God called him to do in life. And the secret to that tree is everything that you can't see under the surface. It's his root system. It's, it's, and so trees slow, grow slowly. And I think in God's economy, like if we try to bypass, and I'm not saying you are, like I'm not, great question. I'm not like shaming you for asking but it's, it's in me almost more than anything, this impulse to sort of bypass the slow stuff to get to, man, that's just not the way God works, you know? And so I would say, I mean, go read the Old Testament, right? It's just like, what are these jokers doing? And God is all the while through the centuries, he's working, he's working through these incredibly dysfunctional people and families. Um, and so to, to save us. And so I think, um, and, and, and Mary, I mean, we wouldn't have the Christ without Mary. Well, I mean, God picked a woman who knew the scriptures to raise himself. 
to raise him because he knew that she would give him what was necessary to save the world. Um, so you're doing, you're doing awesome. But great question. Um, to respect y'all's time, oh, okay, we're already three minutes over. Let's, let's do one, one or two more quick. We'll do lightning round. Lightning round! Has anyone ever listened to podcasts that have, yeah, Tinsley, uh-oh, never mind, next one. <laughs> Tinsley Sarfraniac. <laughs> um, so maybe I should be a little bit more hesitant to disagree with the Protestant reformers, but yeah. could there potentially be a danger in saying, Romans is the key that unlocks the whole rest of the Bible because it, it it seems like you could you could say that about a lot of different for sure uh, portions of scripture. There's a sense, great question. Um, there's a sense in which it, it was a bit dicey. I was kind of being provocative because um, like this is the best thing Paul wrote. Like, hey, it's all God's word. Are you saying? Um, but as uh, so, I I I I, um, I concede. Uh, it's a good and and it's and there's a sense in which it's a teaching tactic to be like. You know, without this, th- let's focus on this. This is without this. Nothing else makes sense. Um, I do, I would still contend that it is Paul's best work of theology. Um, if I, if, I mean, it's my, it's, it's, if I, we play a game in our house where we have people over and we go, okay, five, you have to pick five books of the Bible. You, can, you can't, that, only five. You only get five on a desert island. Which five are you going to pick? It's a fascinating psychological, um, and I, I mean, Romans is definitely in my five. Um, and probably because of the way that it, as an Old Testament person, the way that it makes sense of the Hebrew Bible is just absolutely peerless. But I, 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 he says other things in other books that it's like, where's that in Romans? It's not, you know? And, and so absolutely, and it's all necessary. And that's one of the things that, that that game shows you too. You pick five and you're like, but what about Exodus? And you're like, oh yeah, it's all, it's all God's word for a reason. You know, every, every book that we needed is in there and we need all of them. And so um, that's a good point, Andrew. And um, I was going to say something else about... Um, about Romans. Um, oh, repeat your, uh, I didn't repeat your question. Your question was, hey, I hate to disagree with the Reformers, but is it fair to say that it's Paul's best book, his greatest book? What about other things he wrote? Uh, well, well, it was more, it, would it be fair to say that Romans is the key to unlocking? The key to unlocking, yeah. The whole rest of the Bible. Yeah. Um, there was something else that popped into my head that I wanted to mention, but I, it escaped me just as fast. So, no, it's, I think it's, there are other keys that could, without Romans, we could understand what Paul's, what, what God is saying in the scriptures, but Romans really is his magnum opus, in my opinion. And I think, and I think that the, even the position of the scriptures in the scriptures kind of helps us see that, but um, yeah, I, fair. So um, anything else on that that anybody want to chime in on? That good, good offering. Okay, one more and then we'll be done. Thank you all for staying a little late with me. Anything else? Yeah. Come back next week. Um, like I said, we'll do 5 through 15 next week. We'll have a little, we'll open up with a hymn. We'll hopefully have some time to obviously Q&A, but to pray for one another, um, or for at least for me to pray uh, um, over you. But I would like some ministry to happen while, while we're here. Um, and, and do think about who to bring. Pray. Pray about that. Um, let's be bold. I haven't invited confession. I haven't invited anyone yet, so that's, that's bad on me. Um, I need to. I... I I will, I will invite someone that I will tell you, I will tell you that right now. So I'm on record as saying I will do that. Um, and it's going to be a fun journey. I'm excited. And again, this is the only time I did a lot of intro material. We will not have that in the future. So be encouraged there. Thank you so much for coming. Let me, let me just close this in a brief, a brief prayer. 
Lord, um, what a blessing. What a blessing to be with these dear saints um, and searchers, Lord. And, and um, thank you for God, thank you for this time. It's been so fun. Uh, your word is so rich. It's so good. Um, I can't wait to take this journey together over these next 29 uh, weeks to walk slowly but somewhat briskly through this amazing book uh, that just unfolds your righteousness in the most surprising and saving of ways through your son, Jesus Christ. Would you make us to love him more? And would that change us? And would it change those around us? Would it change the culture around us and the people around us for your glory and for the, the speeding of, of your return? Um, and we, uh, we love you and we bless you. And we say, come Holy Spirit and empower us to go out into the world to be salt and light for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, thanks.